for all the talk of teamwork, look after yourself, you know, uh, and, and not meaning that in a selfish way, but like if you can't function, you're no use to anyone else. Welcome back to the World It's You Medicine podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this session, we're speaking with Ryan Atkinson about his vast experience working across the globe as a cinematographer. Ryan has spent 12 years filming wildlife and science filmmaking for the alliance of the BBC Natural History Unit, Netflix and National Geographic. His work has taken him to over 50 countries on six continents, specialising particularly in polar and mountain environments, and it's seen him joining expeditions of all shapes and sizes, from a 20-strong team abseiling into the world's most active volcano to months spent following polar bears across the Norwegian ice pack. So Ryan has been a stranger to expedition hazards and has experienced minor frost nip in minus 37 degrees, and he's also been medevaced following a scorpion sting in Tanzania. So having volunteered for eight years as a mountain rescue, for mountain rescue, his life took a slight turn with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, where he decided to swap the tropical jungles for concrete jungles in 2021. And he's now about to finish his training as an emergency medical technician with London Ambulance Service. So Ryan has a particular interest in trauma and critical care and has a view to progressing on to his paramedic training in 2023 and then on from there. So we're going to dig into that and much more within the podcast and explore Ryan's colourful past and indeed his more adventurous side. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Hi, Aaron. How are you doing? So Ryan, could you, you could start with um, just giving us a short history of what got you into filmmaking in the first place? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I studied documentary photography at university, kind of following on from the normal sort of GCSEs in media and, and film at A-level. Um, whilst I was at university, I joined the Climbing Society, um, ended up leading the Climbing Society and training as a climbing instructor. And sort of basically, I kind of got into sort of documentary and expedition filmmaking for quite selfish reasons initially. I, I sort of wanted to go to cool places and take cool photographs and trick people into paying me to do it without ever actually feeling like I was working. But also, I guess, you know, it was a passion for telling stories. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of people sort of tend to either excel in sort of creative stuff or in technical and science related things. Um, and I didn't really excel in either, but really enjoyed both. And, um, I guess a lot of it came from wanting to pursue a career that mixed the two aspects, um, was both very kind of creatively stimulating, but also had lots of technical challenges to it. And, um, I think although my degree was stills photography, um, I sort of was forced to work with the video students during my final year. Um, and so I kind of did a collaborative project with them kicking and screaming and then soon realized that actually video was a really powerful medium to complement photography. Um, and instead of taking one photo every 35 seconds, I could take sort of 25 to 35 photos every second instead um, and see where that went. So I guess that's that's kind of where it came from. So I graduated um, in 2010 and went freelance into the world of filmmaking immediately upon graduating. So Ryan, you started to sort of 
transcend uh, some more mundane environments <laughs> for extreme environments. Could you maybe speak to the appeal of working in extreme environments and indeed some, maybe that journey into them? Sure. Yeah. So I, when I first went freelance, I worked on a lot of dramas and commercials. They were just, they were the opportunities available to me at the time. Um, I was still climbing instructing to sort of supplement those early days um, and spent a lot of time working. Um, and I hope no one holds it against me, but working on productions like Casualty um, at the BBC. Um, but I always knew that um, working in kind of uh, extreme environments and natural history and expedition environments was where I wanted to go. Um, I think it was, it was a desire to effectively combine my passions and my hobbies with my work really. Um, and I was, uh, I guess attracted to the balance of kind of self-reliance, but also teamwork that's encountered in extreme environments. Um, You've got to be a, a resourceful individual, but also a really well integrated member of a team. Um, and that, yeah, that really appealed to me. And, and as I say, a lot of it came from just wanting to go to really amazing places um, and and tell cool stories, find those stories and communicate them with other people. I was fundamentally a storyteller. Yeah. So I think I think I, I was really attracted to working at the sharp end of sort of the important issues that we're facing at the moment, um, whether that's climate change, uh, animal extinction, um, things like that. But working in extreme environments allowed me to witness these firsthand, uh, which was a really powerful experience um, and, and something I'm really glad I pursued. Um, but since then, you know, it, it sort of very quickly evolved from those sort of selfish reasons of just wanting to go to to really cool places and do good stuff into um, recognizing the importance of all these issues and the importance of communicating them. So kind of over the years, I went from just snatching every piece of work that came my way to having a sort of desire to work on productions and in, in environments that had more of a purpose behind them. Um, but, you know, before, before I got into this, I, I had basically traveled to Belgium uh, the United States and a school trip to Spain. Other than that, I had not been outside of the United Kingdom. Uh, so it all snowballed quite quickly for me. Well, it certainly did. Uh, looking at, you know, over 50 countries on six continents and indeed, yeah, just a real diversity of places and, uh, and work projects. Uh, could you maybe speak to sort of some of the most hostile conditions you've worked in, Ryan? Yeah, I think um, hostile is a tricky one. I, I, I sort of, I naturally shy away from the word hostile. I think lots of things can be hostile with the wrong approach, but quite tame with the right approach. But I guess I, I would, I would split hostile down into two contexts. So global travel to me and, and kind of expedition environments, you, you encounter, I guess, two, two broad areas of hostility, and I would sort of classify that as you know, you've got. On one hand, you've got environmental hostility, so really harsh environments, difficult climatic conditions, things like that. Um, and then on the other hand, you have human hostility where you're working maybe in conflict zones or areas where there's uh, a lot of cultural issues or security issues. Um, and they are two, two elements that can make an environment very hostile but require a very different approach. Um, 
sort of from an environmental perspective for me, you, you know, you already mentioned in the introduction there, I, I specialized in polar and mountain environments. Um, but I've also worked extensively, you know, in the rainforest, in caves, in coastal environments. Um, and what's really, you know, interesting is that every environment has its very own, you know, has its own unique challenges, requires very distinct skills, um, distinct experiences and, and attitudes to approach those environments. Um, you know, mountain environments require a lot of physical fitness to overcome the, the specific challenges of those, a lot of attention to detail and, and broader knowledge around things like weather and the technical expertise required to operate in a mountain in a high altitude environment. Um, uh, rainforests, it's more about having basically resilience, uh, resourcefulness, being able to adapt to whatever's in front of you and, and sort of, um, come up with ways of overcoming those challenges. Um, caves, I think they just require a unique skill set of a lack of self-respect and dignity really to survive in those environments uh, a week down a cave sleeping on piles of bat poo um i think you just need to accept that you're not going to be very clean and uh throw all uh pretenses of of being neat and tidy out of the window and and that's just about agreeing your teeth and getting through um, but but human hostility is is a completely different ball game um speaking of hostile environments you know uh, i think there's, I don't like to categorize countries and, and places in terms of hostility. I think it's unfair. I think it's unproductive. doesn't get us anywhere. Uh, there's hostility everywhere you go in terms of human hostility. There's hostility here in London. There's hostility in, in rural parts of the UK. There's hostility in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and, and places like that. There's, it, it's about approaching that hostility, um, from a open-minded um, and productive place, um, having good cultural awareness, which really stems, you know, comes from good preparation. Um, and simple things like in the early days, approaching uh, environments, I, I remember doing shoots uh, in places like Madagascar, where there was a lot of banditry going on at the time, um, in Pakistan, uh, shortly after some of the big uh, conflicts that had gone just over the border with Afghanistan. Um, and simple things like picking up a Lonely Planet guide for the area every time before I went to a new place and reading about the cultural aspects of that area, the religious aspects, how I could be sensitive to um, the kind of context of the country I was visiting. And I think that goes a long way to overcoming that hostility. So I guess, like I say, it's, you know, I, I shy away from the word hostile um, because I think an, an environment and a culture is is what you make of it and what you approach it with. Um, yeah. I think it's good to actually differentiate, as you said, and, and actually there's plenty <clears throat> of nuances in, like you said, each each culture and indeed each so each culturally hostile uh, environment and you as you were saying and speaking to environment scanning and doing your research and and looking at um some of the research coming from uh, the indigenous populations or indeed people on the ground is is absolutely prudent and it's very different like you said to the research you might do when you're going into a environmentally hostile environment maybe if we could just pivot for a second ryan and look at your work with the bbc natural history <coughs> unit 
sort of what did that entail and what did you learn from working with them? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the one of the first programs I worked on that was put out by the BBC Natural History Unit um, was The Hunt, uh, David Attenborough program some years ago now. It, it's a little odd in that it wasn't produced directly by the Natural History Unit. It was produced by an independent production company um, that was set up by a previous head of the Natural History Unit. But it was very much BBC DNA. Um, and it was, you know, the first shoot I did for them uh, was out to Madagascar. Um, it was also one of my first big foreign shoots, um, certainly in the context of more remote environments. Um, and it was just, it was a great training ground on the the sort of demands of high-end television, television production in those environments, um, working on these big, what we call blue chip wildlife productions, namely, you know, the stuff that you see narrated by David Attenborough. Um, it's, there's a lot of conflicting uh, goals in, in that. And um, I think, you know, starting that part of my filming career in Madagascar was great. It's a relatively tame expedition environment. Um, relatively speaking, you know, it's still a remote country with lots of challenges, both from an environmental and a security perspective. But um, what I like to tell people is that there is pretty much nothing in the Madagascan rainforest that can kill you, which is um, almost unique in rainforests, really. Uh, there's leeches, and I had some fun experiences with those, but there's not really anything particularly dangerous from a flora and fauna perspective out there so it was great you know to learn about working in those environments I was out there with some very experienced team members um, with a wealth of knowledge who sort of took me under their wing um, and then just learning from a production perspective about balancing the different goals um, and looking at what was achievable for us within the context of budgets, within the context of the time available to us uh, and the acceptable risk that we were willing to take to, to kind of achieve those goals. So um, I learned a lot on those early shoots to Madagascar, other shoots I did after that to places like uh, Chile and um, Borneo and Peru Um learning a lot about, about adaptability, learning a lot about travel. As I say, I mean, I mean I've, I'd, I'd barely left the UK before all of this started. So um, I was very naive initially, but it is a steep learning curve. And I think it was a real privilege to work with such a prestigious um, group like the BBC Natural History Unit, you know, and their reputation globally for working these environments, telling stories in a sensitive way um, and just uh, excellence in what they do. You know, it was, a, it was a real privilege to sort of um, have my early years under their wing in, in that way. It sounds like, it, yeah, it solidifies some really good practice and um, and it looks like you carry that forward because uh, let's look sort of fast forwarding slightly and looking for your work with Netflix. Um, again, a, a, a massive uh, multinational company now. Could you maybe speak to your work with them and some of the diversity exper of experience you gathered with uh, the Netflix? Yeah, I, I came a long way, I think, between my early days um, on The Hunt and my more recent work with Netflix. Uh, I think uh, one, one story that really 
I probably should have touched on it in the previous section, but I remember my my first night uh, arriving on location in Madagascar on my, my first big shoot. This was still back on the hunt. Um, I remember getting into my rainforest lodge and um, there were just insects and spiders and, and critters all over the place. And, and I was like tired and jet lagged and it, it was a new environment. I didn't really know what, where I was or what I was doing. And I, I grabbed some toilet paper out of the bathroom and I was sort of going around this little one room lodge, stuffing toilet paper in all these big cracks thinking, Oh, that'll keep me safe. That'll keep me safe. And then I, uh, I sort of tucked myself away for, for the night in bed and did the whole, you know, tucking my mosquito net under the mattress. I'm not going to get malaria on this shoot. Yeah. Keep myself safe. And then waking up at about two o'clock in the morning, rolling over and seeing a massive gecko on the pillow next to me. And I just thought, well, that was all pretty pointless, wasn't it? Um, whereas now, you know, I go out to these places working on, on some of the more recent productions I've done for, for Netflix and, uh, you know, gone are the days of tucking in mosquito nets, gone are the days of trying to avoid critters and insects and snakes and all of it. You just learn to live alongside it instead. Um, my first, uh, my first big shoot for Netflix was our planet, which I guess I think was, went into production a good four or five years ago now, um, the time cycle on these productions is generally four years from initial filming to, to actually being out on TV. Um, by that time, I'd built up so much more expedition experience. I'd, I'd seen a lot more of the world. I'd been to a lot more environments. I'd worked with a lot of people who'd mentored me very well, um, and I'd learned a lot from them. So I'd begun, I think, when I worked with Netflix, I'd begun to develop a lot of the restlessness that I spoke about earlier about wanting to move away from just um, experiences in in remote environments for the sake of experience to wanting to tell stories with a purpose and almost sort of feeling a bit uncomfortable about going on shoots where there wasn't a clear um, environmental or climate or scientific purpose to them. Um, it wasn't a game anymore. I was seeing kind of global damage firsthand and I wanted to play a part in doing something about it. Um, and I'm in, in no way criticizing the BBC. I will be the first person to stand up and defend them. I think as a broadcaster, they are the envy of the world um, and rightly so. Uh, and they've come a huge way with recent series like Blue Planet 2, Frozen Planet 2. But historically... Um, some BBC productions, not all, but some have shied away from tackling what have been but shouldn't be contentious issues, uh, such as climate change and things like that. Um, and I understand that there's a, there's a charter for the BBC. There's there's politics involved. It, it's been difficult in the past, and they've taken huge leaps and bounds in the right direction. But what was notable about my work with Netflix was um, that with the absence of a charter and the money behind um, a company like Netflix, they didn't have the same requirements or limitations in terms of being able to tackle these issues. So it was very exciting to be involved in Our Planet, which was the first big natural history production that was commissioned directly by Netflix, um, made by the same people who made The Hunt, but one of the big goals of that series was to uh, 
tackle these issues head on and develop a, um, they called it the Halo project, develop a kind of encompassing package of education and um, scientific discussion around the series. So it was just super exciting. I think Our Planet stands out to me as one of the first productions that really took a, a step forward into, okay, this isn't just about entertainment. This is a tool and a medium that we can try and change things through. Um, and I think just the unique structure of Netflix and, and the sheer money behind them, it really enabled a new look at how we did that. So that was a super kind of exciting time as all these different streaming companies were, were moving into wildlife and expedition filmmaking. Um, it was, it, yeah, it was really exciting to be involved in the early days of that. Um, and just the, you know, the breadth of shoots I was doing at that stage. Um, I still very much have my polar and mountain specialties, but for Netflix, I did shoots in Borneo where um, I went there on a number of occasions for the production. And every time I would go, we would witness firsthand the extent of deforestation. Um, I worked a lot in an area called Mulu in the Sarawak province. And, and the short flight in from the local city, Miri, into Mulu, the village where we worked, every time I would make this, you know, 30, 45 minute flight, you'd fly over the jungles and every time you'd see the logging compounds getting closer and closer and closer to the national park, to the point where the last time I went there, there's almost no boundary anymore. Um, and, you know, going to Yellowstone, filming uh, foxes and bobcats hunting out there, these shoots were cancelled halfway through because we were there in February and we needed frozen rivers and snow and the snow was melting and the rivers weren't frozen and we couldn't do what we needed to do. Um, and then, you know, other shoots that I did for our planet and Netflix down in, in Tanzania, looking at drought and the effects of upstream water irrigation and how that would impact on the environment. So it was just really, yeah, it was, it's super exciting to, to be in that early stage where, these productions started to have more um, direct purpose to them. And, and I got to be a part of that. Again, it's just a real privilege. So looking at your work with uh, the National Geographic and indeed maybe just carrying through some of your experience in the BBC and Netflix, um, uh, there, there seems to be, a, a like you said, maybe a more holistic progression through to Netflix where there's this sustainability, there's empirical evidence and indeed maybe uh, um, a, a real footprint of or mindfulness of, of the carbon footprint. Could you maybe speak to how it, it differentiated again for um, for National Geographic? Yeah, N National Geographic, you know, it's a very different beast um, to the likes of Netflix and um, the Natural History Unit uh, and some of the other production companies and broadcasters involved. Uh, I think fundamentally with National Geographic, it's a very different audience. Uh, historically, it is very American um, and it's very much geared at that American audience. It's going more global. Um, and, I'm, and I'm talking specifically na National Geographic, the the TV channels here, not the magazine. Um, it's important, I think, to make that distinction. Um, but yeah, very American audience. Um, and that showed through the different goals and aims of their production. Um, working with National Geographic, it was more of the kind of expedition shoots I did. Um, and it was much more about human experience, about jeopardy on expedition, 
and about making complex science accessible. Pardon me. Um, it was much more about human experience, much more about jeopardy on expedition and making complex science accessible to viewers. Um, National Geographic shoots that I've done have tended to have bigger teams, uh, more intense goals, uh, much shorter time frames. And I think that pulls in a lot of human factors, which, you know, hopefully we can touch on a bit later in the conversation, because I think there's a real crossover between my uh, filmmaking work in terms of human factors and medicine and human factors and, and how all this plays together. Um, but I think that was much more apparent on National Geographic. Um, the cave shoot that I mentioned was one such shoot that I did for them. You know, we some of these natural history shoots for the BBC, it would be a team of two or three of us going into a remote area and being dropped off and fending for ourselves for a month. Um, this National Geographic shoot in, in particular in Borneo, we were there for just over three weeks with a team of maybe, I think there was 20 of us, a number of presenters, um, three of us camera people, uh, sound recordists. We had a paramedic with us. We had a number of guides, um, lots of local team helping us, uh, fixers and porters and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, I think naturally when you have more people and more moving parts, there's very different challenges. Um, but, it, but it was also, you know, it was no less exciting and no less purposeful because, you know, some of the stuff that we were doing on that was making this complex science of environmental change accessible to people that wouldn't necessarily sit and watch an hour of animals being narrated by, you know, a respectful English voice um, frolicking around in the wilderness. You know, they wanted something different. And uh, some of the early work of National Geographic did a really good job, I think, of opening discussion around important issues to a to a completely different audience um but yeah it's just you know we've spoken about the bbc natural history unit about netflix about national geographic they've all been fantastic broadcasters to work with uh, and a small number of the broadcasters i have worked with you know there's many more but they're all very distinct in what they do and how they approach it um both from an on the ground, I'm the camera person, I'm out on expedition perspective, and from a what the final product is perspective. So there's a couple of aspects I'd like to look at, Ryan, um, around sort of self-care in these environments and maybe kit husbandry as well. Because I think one thing I've learned about being in extreme environments, albeit jungle or desert or mountainous environments, is, you know, self-care is absolutely key and, and everything sort of flows from that. But then you've got the added complexity of kit husbandry, of highly technical kit, electrical kit. Could you maybe speak to initially self-care and then maybe the, your approach to kit husbandry and how that had to sort of adapt and change across time? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we'll start with the self-care. So, for, for you know, for all the talk of teamwork, look after yourself, you know, uh, and, and not meaning that in a selfish way, but like, if you can't function, you're no use to anyone else. So, you know, simple things, look after your feet, you know, in, in any expedition environment, if you, if you can't look after your feet and you can't move, you're, you're useless. 
and you're a sitting duck for any sort of risks and challenges that come along. So in, in a sense, you have to be a little bit selfish. You have to put yourself first from, from a um, care and health perspective. Um, and then I think other, other things that are particularly important in, in working in those sort of difficult environments um, just, and again, there's a lot of crossover to medicine here. It's, it's really about identifying and communicating well your goals and ensuring efficiency and achieving them. I think um, I like to think of an expedition environment as being something that requires battery power. Um, and I'm not just talking about from a batteries for cameras perspective. I'm talking about, you know, me, my body battery, if you will, though, you know, maybe I'm a hundred percent before I go on expedition. And when I come back, I'm zero percent, but I have to make that last for a month because on an expedition environment, in an expedition environment, there's few, if any, opportunities to recharge. So I think um, it's crucial to work efficiently to, to be able to function well and achieve your goals. Um, it's crucial to recognize that in that kind of environment, there are some things that can be controlled, uh, such as your camp situation, the way you work and interact with your team members the way you look after your equipment and yourself and there's other things that can't be controlled the weather um external factors the 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 local people you're working with they they have certain needs and wants and desires and motivations and and you can't change those you have to slot in around them it would be disrespectful to try and change them um so it's you know identify your your goals make sure everyone knows your goals identify the things that can be controlled and mitigate the things that can't be controlled. Um, and all of that allows you to kind of free up the bandwidth that you need and the, and the body battery, if you like, that you need to be able to achieve those goals to whether that's, you know, making a specific film, filming a, a certain wildlife behavior, for instance, or, you know, undertaking a, a particular scientific experiment. It all kind of, comes into this you know risk identification stratification and that's what enables you to work well in those environments um you know other things never leave never leave your accommodation without toilet paper you know carry a decent multi-purpose knife and always look where you're putting your hands um because that's when things go wrong um and then you know in terms of kit husbandry, if we're talking about the more kind of technical aspects of filmmaking and camera equipment, um, I think admin, 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 just admin all day, every day, you know, go out, film for 12, 13, 14 hours, come back, don't expect to sleep, get on with your admin and look after your equipment. Because if you don't, it falls apart very quickly. These environments, whether that is, you know, polar, polar winter or you know high altitude mountain or a sopping wet rainforest they neither people nor technical equipment was designed to function well in these environments and it's all about the admin um you know you have to have a plan a a plan b a plan c and then throw it out the window and come up with a plan z um you have to kind of with all your equipment you it's about getting ahead of the problems before they occur you know, so in cold environments, cables break. There's, there's something magical about the number of 36.5 minus 36.5 Celsius. I don't know what it is. Up to 36, well, down to 36.5. Things things sort of work. Below 36.5, they just don't. I don't know what it is about 36.5, but things just break below that temperature. 
Um, so have spares for all your vital components. Um, as a photographer, to me, that means having spare cables, having spare LCD monitors for when the crystals inevitably freeze. Um, it means having in a rainforest bags of silica gel and Ziploc bags for ensuring I can dry things out properly. Um, from a medical perspective on expedition, it's going to mean, you know, you're going to a polar environment. Do you have loads of um, cables for your life pack and your observations or whatever, you know, equipment you're using from that perspective, because they're going to break and you don't want a cardiac arrest where your defibrillator cables are all frozen and snapping. Um, it's no good to anyone. So get ahead of the problems, um, kind of think about what challenges you're going to have and then have a, have a backup plan in place. Um, and uh, also have coffee for me is vital. Always have good coffee. I have, a multitude of coffee making paraphernalia and, and I never leave home without it. Um, and the same can be said for now working on ambulance as for when I was, you know, working in the bush somewhere. So I think we'll, we'll come on to that actually. And we'll, we'll start to look at the sort of medical chapter in, in your life, but absolutely coffee is an essential, but also in the jungle, I was always cognizant of, of, of not putting my feet into boots I'd always kick out, kick out your boots because you'd never know what's crawled into them in, oh, right, in the yeah. night. And yeah, no, I mean, that was, yeah. I, I, this, this shoot, you know, always springs to mind in, in Borneo. Uh, I'd, I'd done a few shoots out there. I kind of had my head screwed on about working in rainforest environments, but we, we had a, a young, uh, I think he was a researcher, maybe an assistant producer with us. He'd never worked in the rainforest before. And so we set up our camp in the rainforest and we, we, you know, explained the drill. So we're like, okay, well, you rig your hammock, hammock between two trees and get two sticks and put them in the ground underneath your hammock tarp. And at night you get a little square of cardboard or carpet or something, stand on it, take your boots off, turn them upside down and put them on the sticks so nothing can crawl into them and no snakes can curl up in them overnight. And then turn your head torch to a red lamp so the insects don't get attracted. Strip off naked and make sure you've got no leeches on you. And only then when you're safe, do you unzip your hammock, jump in it, zip it back up. And that's your that's your safe space. That's your clean zone. But this this AP or, or researcher thought we were just winding him up and wanted to you know, make fun of him for getting naked in the jungle or something. So he didn't do any of this. Um, and then the following morning after the first night, uh, we wake up and he walks over to the breakfast table and he sits down. And uh, we get a look at his back and his cream, brand new crack copper shirt is just stained red. The back of it is completely red with blood. And and so, we, you know, the guides obviously instantly know what's happened. They tell him to take his shirt off and he's just got these, I think he had about seven or eight massive leeches just gorging on him. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> painful, I forget how painful. we got onto that, but it's a fun story. No. <laughs> Well, actually, is a nice segue, actually, Ryan, onto just sort of seminal cases whilst filming expeditions. Because from a medical perspective, I, I, I think, you know, you're starting to, pre-COVID-19 pandemic, um, you were maybe thinking about more about the medical aspect of things. Uh, I know your partner, I, I believe, is a, is, a, is a nurse and was already... Uh, 
in in sort of a medical professional could you maybe speak to before we look at the 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 significant life pivot into paramedicine and training as an emt could could you just speak to any sort of seminal medical moments you did have indeed involving yourself or other people on expedition absolutely yeah i mean so uh, it was a bit i was i was professionally i was a, a cinematographer you know that's that's what i did pardon me professionally i was a cinematographer you know that's what i did that's why i was hired to go on expeditions but alongside this i'd also spent eight years volunteering for mountain rescue um and in that role i'd undertaken various kind of specialty trainings one of which was casualty care in mountain rescue which is it's it's not it doesn't map over onto the kind of ambulance pre-hospital system, but it was the most, it was the highest level of medical training within mountain rescue as an organization. You know, it, it gave us the ability to give certain controlled drugs in certain situations um, and, and undertake some more advanced clinical interventions pre-hospitally. So with that hat on, I often did go on these expeditions also filling the role as sort of an advanced first aider for, for lack of a better term um, particularly the smaller expeditions where team numbers were limited and we couldn't maybe justify taking a dedicated medic or doctor with us um so you know with hat on this the with that hat on there's definitely a couple of things that spring to mind that i think it's um i've learned lessons from um and hopefully can share them and other people can learn the lessons without going through the same experiences. What One of them is what happens when the medic becomes the casualty. Um, so you mentioned it in the introduction there, but I, um, I had a, I think medevac is a strong word, but I was very swiftly pulled out of the field and sent to hospital in Tanzania after a scorpion sting. Um, and, and this comes back to what we were saying, you know, shake your boots out, look where you're putting your hands. I was packing up. It was the last day of the shoot. We 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 spent ten days filming um, African killer bees. Um, so I'd been dangling on ropes in a tree in a baobab tree for ten days, not stung once, absolutely fine. And then I'm in my tent, uh, my safari tent, packing up on the last day, um, and just chilled out. Got a bit of music on. We're flying home that evening, and I pick up uh, one of my monitors to put it back in its case, and I felt this kind of stab on my hand um and initially i thought that i'd got one of those big uh you get these really big thorns on some of the shrubs out in east africa and i thought maybe that i've got one of those in my hand so I, and i put the monitor down and looked down at my hand and i sort of looked past my hand and saw this tiny little brown scorpion scuttle away underneath another case and then i just uh, freaked out basically. Um, and I think within 30 seconds to a minute, it was pain like I struggled to describe. Um, it felt like someone was hammering a white hot nail through my palm and at the same time crushing my whole arm underneath a pile of bricks. Um, and so I, I got out of my tent and I sprinted up to the kind of base area where the producer was sat with the local fixer and i was like guys i've, I've just been stung by a scorpion i don't know i don't know what type um i don't know what's going to happen but we probably need to get me to some medical care in case something bad happens um and on that expedition i was the only one with any form of medical training albeit not 
not very advanced medical training at that stage certainly didn't really know anything about toxicology and 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 venomation um but so so then they they piled me into the back of a land cruiser there was a hospital a couple of hours down the road um so we you know i'm on the back i'm on the the flatbed at the back of the Land Rover with the producer and fixers driving the Land Rover towards this hospital. Um, and I just remember on the way I was sort of passing out from the pain. I, it was just immense pain. Thankfully I didn't, nothing sw- swelled up. I didn't go into anaphylaxis or anything, but the pain was, you know, I was in and out of consciousness. And at the same time, I'm there trying to say to the producer, okay, there's a, there's a sterile kit of needles in my bag. Um, this is the gauge that he should be using. Um, this is where he should be thinking about injecting if he's going to give any anti-venom or any anesthetics. Um, and then we, we, you know, we get to the hospital um, and, you know, it was, it was well resourced, but it was an East African rural hospital. Um and uh, I'm still kind of in and out of consciousness in immense pain and I get on the table and, and thankfully the producer's, you know, taken everything on board I've said, and he pulls out my sterile kit and, and offers it to the doctors there to use. Cause you, you just don't know whether their needles are clean or not. Um, uh, so these my, I ended up getting a lidocaine injection subcut in my hand and that, that knocked me out again for a few minutes. And then I came to, and, um, it didn't really seem to do much. Um, but, you know, the key was that I was at some form of definitive care should things go south. Um, but it just, it was a, it was a real scary experience, not from what happened to me. I, you know, I made a full recovery. I, I got upgraded on the flight home because I was there looking pale and whimpering with my arm in a sling. Um, but I learned a lot about, the need for every member of a team in that environment to have some level of training about not necessarily clinical intervention, but what to do when things go wrong um, and to be prepared for it. Because like I say, if, if the medic becomes the casualty, that's, you know, that's almost worst case scenario because, because you're not going to have, unless it's a really big expedition, you're not going to have two medics. Um, so it's really important, I think, as if you're there from a medical perspective, you, you have to look after yourself. It is absolutely vital, not just for yourself, but for the safety of the whole team, that you have to look after yourself and you have to ensure everyone else knows the plans if things go wrong. Um, That's and- absolutely key, actually, Ryan. Yeah, just to say around, just just it tests the whole Kazivak uh, plan in reality. And like you said, if people aren't briefed on that, it will test weaknesses in the plan. Um, and that will, in, in reality, um, lead to... Um, the care being um, or patient care being delayed and and or subverted. So it's it's actually key, like you said, that everyone knows the plan. It's well tested, and that actually there is this baseline of medical care amongst the team, even if it's just as we teach on the courses, just just teaching basic first aid to everyone at the start of an expedition, and also indeed where the basic kit is in the bag. So when they open the bag in anger, that's not the first time that they see the kit. That there's some kind of familiar familiarity familiarity there absolutely absolutely I, I totally agree i think another thing you know as well as the, that kind of like you say that basic training going into something you know maybe make sure everyone knows bls make sure everyone knows where the kit is make sure everyone knows basic hemorrhage control 
Um, it's also about knowing the people on the team and knowing any pre-existing medical conditions or vulnerabilities that they may have. Um, another case that kind of always jumps to mind thinking about, about medical issues on expedition, um, I was doing a shoot in Peru um, filming spectacle bears and we were in a very remote area in the dry forests in northern Peru. It had taken three days, I think, of hiking to get into this location up very steep mountainsides. And they, they don't do switchback paths in Peru. They just go straight up the front of the hill. Um, so it was tough to get there. And 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 the the bush in the area was really difficult to work into. It was, you know, there was no there was no quick way out none at all you know if if someone went down it was either hope that we could find a helicopter with winch capability or it was put the person on someone's back and walk them down the hill and and hope that you can do it in less than the three days that it takes you to get up the hill but um on that shoot our local scientist had suffered from asthma um quite severe asthma which you know i think we we knew she had asthma we didn't know the severity to which she suffered from it and we didn't know the triggers and it turns out that a specific pollen in the bushes in the area where we were working were one of those triggers now uh, the scientist you know she was fantastic scientist great great individual doing amazing work um and she had a rescue kit there she had a rescue kit with i think adrenaline um, some emox and um, steroids uh, but for whatever reason it didn't come up the mountain with us um, and so after a few days of being at the top of the mountain filming uh, we were sat around camp one day and she started to have an asthma attack um, which turned into probably borderline life-threatening asthma um, she was starting to go unconscious um, we were having to support her. Her breathing was, was you know, incredibly rapid and shallow, but then starting to slow down in quite a worrying way. Uh, and this went on for maybe an hour and a half to two hours. Um, and, you know, it didn't start like it, it progressed. Um, and, and I think all she had with her was a salbutamol inhaler. And and we didn't know that this was something that could happen. We didn't have the appropriate equipment for it. Um, again, I was I was the only one with anything beyond you know first aid at work level of training. But without without a bag of equipment specific to her condition, there was very little I could do. We didn't have any oxygen. We certainly didn't have any bronchodilators or nebulizers. Um, so it was just about supporting her as best as I could. But um, you know, what that showed me is push, I don't want to sound dramatic, but push the big red button early. So when it became clear that it was going south, um, I knew that I had an EpiPen in my first aid kit, which, you know, I know it's got adrenaline in it. Um, turns out it was slightly out of date again poor preparation but we got on a sat phone we spoke to our medical providers and we said look if it comes to it is it safe to give this will it help um and then we started the ball, ball rolling on people looking at the availability of helicopters for medivac in the in the region um it didn't come to it 
the scientist very thankfully recovered, was able to get her breathing under, under control, managed to clear the allergen from her system and um, we were all okay and we, we stayed up there for the rest of the shoot. But I was acutely aware that a medevac is a lot harder to get rolling in that sort of an environment than it is to cancel. So, uh, yeah, push the push the button early. If things are going south, get the ball rolling. Um, contact who, whoever your bailout crew is, whoever your office team are. Get on the sat phone to them. Get on the sat phone early because you can de-escalate quickly if you need to. But if you wait until things are really bad to start finding out where that helicopter is going to come from and how long it's going to take, then it's too late. So, Ryan, let's look at uh, the significant shift in your life, because um, the COVID-19 pandemic certainly tested a lot of revenue streams and uh, the business plans and people's careers. Um, and indeed, yourself, you took a dramatic pivot uh, post sort of COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, could you maybe sort of speak to what the synergist for that decision was and also as I'm joining to that question, what you carried through, because we've, we've spoken there about sort of human factors and, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C. I'd be really interested to, to see what you carried through from your time on expeditions and as a cinematographer. Could you, could you maybe speak to both if possible? Absolutely. Um, it, it, you know, it's a difficult question. I, I'd always, well, not always, but I think from a very early stage of my career, I knew that for me, at least it was time limited. Um, I did not want to be the 50, 60 year old with a bad back struggling to get around in the wilderness, being a weak link in the team, um, and, and not enjoying it. Uh, I wanted to have a family and I didn't want to not see my children grow up at this stage. You know, I was spending six to eight months of the year abroad. Um, and I, I, I think lots of with the pandemic, lots of things just came together. So, so I had this awareness that I, the only other thing that had ever interested me with par, was paramedicine and pre-hospital care. And I had in my mind that that was where I was going to go when I felt I'd done my time on expedition filmmaking. Um, and then the pandemic came along and I just, I remember this one weekend in, I think it was late February, 2020, when the pandemic was not even really here in the UK. It was this thing on our shores. We knew it was coming. We could see it in Italy. We'd heard about it in China, but it wasn't here. But airports started closing around the world and border control started coming in. And in one weekend, I lost a year and a half worth of work. You know, I, I went we were actually, we were, we were on a little holiday with some friends in Wales. And from the Saturday morning, I, I literally went from a year and a half worth of bookings to nothing, zero, all of my work had gone. And so I think one issue was that highlighted to me the vulnerabilities of a career as a self-employed cinematographer who relied on being able to travel. Um, at the same time, I had been developing a bit of a restlessness and unease around my career from I think a number of perspectives there was I was acutely aware of the impact on the environment of what I was doing um and I'm not talking you know I'm not one for flight shaming I think it's important that we go around and we we communicate these issues and if the the ability to do that means taking a long haul flight somewhere I'm not going to point the finger at someone who's doing that 
Um, but with the boom of streaming services making these productions, there were, you know, five, six, seven film crews going to the same place to film the same story at the same time. And that's not sustainable to me. Um, and then also I had this unease. I was aware that that it had got to the stage in that career. It wasn't good for my mental health anymore. Um, it is viciously competitive, um, which is good in a sense that, um, it engenders talent and development and excellence, but it's also brutal. Uh, you are, it's all self-employed by nature. So you are out there pitching yourself all the time, selling yourself saying, Hey, I'm better than this person. Hire me. Um, and it just wasn't, it wasn't good for me. And the comparison of why is person X working and I'm not, you know, why did they get this job? And I didn't, and I could feel the effects on my mental health of that. Um, so there was that kind of restlessness and in ease, there was the loss of my work. Um, and I actually, I started volunteering for London ambulance service. Initially I, I got in touch with them, you know, thinking, well, Hey, here am I miserable and unemployed and here's the ambulance service busy and on their knees. Um, and, and I got in touch with them thinking I would just help with make ready or packing bags or whatever it was I could do to help. And they actually invited me to go out on ambulances as part of the London ambulance services, um, COVID support scheme. So working on a double crewed ambulance alongside a paramedic, um, delivering clinical care, um, because of my background in mountain rescue. Uh, so I started doing that. Um, and then I had a daughter, um, at the end of, uh, 2020, uh, and that, I think that was the final catalyst that, cause that was a big value for me is I wanted to see my kid grow. Uh, uh, so I did, I did a couple final shoots in 2021, big shoots. You know, I, I, I had a couple of months abroad when she was very young, but, they, but it was tough. And, and, uh, and then things just fell into place, you know, uh, Cumbria university announced this new paramedic degree apprenticeship that they're doing. Um, and at the same time, the London Ambulance Service started recruiting trainee. At the time, it was trainee emergency ambulance crew. Now it's, it's trainee emergency medical technician. Um, and I thought, well, look, here's my way in. If, if I don't do it now, then when? You know, I'm not able to fund myself going back to university to study paramedic sciences. So here's a great opportunity to learn on the job um, and to start making inroads into a really exciting new career. Um, and I certainly haven't turned my back on, on, on filmmaking. I still freelance. I still go and shoots here and there. This summer I, I did a shoot out in the Italian Alps, um, sort of like science living history shoot. Um, but yeah, it, it just, there was this, this moment where all of these different kind of, um, niggles that I had just seems to be answered by this moment of moment of perfect timing. And I just, I jumped the gun and, and, and I went, okay, let's go for it. Um, and so I started training full time with London Ambulance Service uh, in August last year. Um, and I have just handed in all of my practice placement portfolio and had everything signed off and all my essays. So I am now just waiting for uh, a date for my final exams and then I will be a qualified EMT. Um, but it's, it's, it's been a really exciting journey. Yeah, it's been great. And, and like you say, there's there's lots of crossover around human issues. It's, you know, it's, I can't see myself ever working in a nine to five office job. Um, and I'm not knocking people that, that do that's for some people. It's not for me. Um, I thrive on the unpredictability. 
Um, I thrive on um, kind of the meticulous approach to it and the, the necessity for good admin and preparation and continuous learning, um, striving to be at the top of your game all the time. Um, a lot of the same challenges are there, uh, but it's, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a really exciting journey kind of learning about all this new stuff and, and looking at how people skills and ways of working that I've developed through expedition can better my practice as a pre-hospital clinician. So Brian, looking at that uh, and, and just the fruition <laughs> of bringing through all the experience from, from the filming, uh, what kind of challenges and cases does London manifest from a pre-hospital perspective compared to maybe indeed the challenges from your prior career? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's not, it's not London specific, but one thing that jumps to mind is, is reconcile as a real challenge is reconciling that experience as a creative professional with this new world of algorithms and guidelines, uh, and JR Calc and nice and all, and, and the British thoracic society and all of this very specific way of doing things where I have spent 12 years, um, sort of figuring things out as I go and, and looking outside of the box and thinking about new ways of doing things. You know, there's a lot of value to that in pre-hospital care from a research perspective, but there's also a real importance of knowing guidelines, knowing algorithms, doing the right things in the right order at the right time. So it's been a real interesting challenge to kind of reconcile those, those two things together. Um, London specifically, I think, you know, London Ambulance Service has a lot of the same challenges as the rest of the UK, but it also has some unique ones. Um, I work in southeast London. So our, our hospital flow here is, is pretty good. It's a rarity for me to be queuing at hospital for more than 20 minutes or so. Um, I say that having queued for three hours last night, but um, that's that's unusual. You know, I'm seeing in a 12 hour shift, I'm seeing seven or eight patients. So I, we, I, I personally don't experience those same challenges that I know clinicians elsewhere in the country are having to tackle and deal with at the moment. But, you know, I think unique to to London, our, our case turnover is insane. Uh, you know, I worked a Sunday recently and a, and a Sunday you expect to be one of the quieter days of, of more low acuity calls, but I think we hit over 6,500 CADs on, on a Sunday. Um, and I'm doing, you know, like I say, seven or eight patients a shift, all very different patients. There's a real diversity of calls in London, which I think, you know, and I'm and I'm not. I don't have experience of other services, but I, I all I can say is from what I get here, all of the challenges that that diversity of calls, that the social deprivation in inner city London, things like that, throw up. It's a real good training ground, uh, and I hope that that diversity of pre-hospital experience will make me a better clinician if and when I, I choose to move to a different ambulance service or a different region and, and practice there. Um. Yeah, one other thing I want to note on, I think, you know, I mentioned the social deprivation. I think something that, as someone who's new to the game, as it were, something that really shocked me was the social deprivation in inner city London. And, you know, I know I knew social deprivation was there. I'm not blind to it. But seeing the impact that that has on healthcare and people's health, that's not something I'd experienced. That's not something I'd seen before going into this. Um 
And one thing that's kind of notable here in London is our accessibility to healthcare is very high. There are a lot of hospitals, there are a lot of GP practices, there are a lot of urgent care centers, um, but self-care is very low in a lot of the population. So, you know, that's again, another real challenge and another really interesting observation is that you can throw all the resources you want at something and all the pathways and all the joint working with advanced paramedics and HEMS teams that we have down here and urgent response teams and all of that. But there needs to be some different solution because we have the access to all of the best pathways you can want here in London, but we still have big problems around people taking responsibility for their care and accessing those services by choice. Um, yeah, that's been a real eye opener, I think, to learn about that. And interestingly, as an adjoiner to that, really, Ryan, is is self-care amongst the population of paramedics, and that's that's wider than London. And it, I think it reaches nationally and internationally. But, um, I, you know, I uh, again, this is maybe not for this podcast and maybe not for now, but just the approach to self-care. And uh, as we were speaking before on Expedition and how you've carried that through, because actually, actually you have to steward good self-care if you're doing your run of four or five or six night shifts, you know, and, and there has to be a semblance of good nutrition, good sleep, good uh, good exercise. But um, do you feel like that you've, you've hopefully carried that through from your Expedition experience? A absolutely. I think um, my Expedition experience... Um, has given me a resilience that I wouldn't have had it not been for some of the things that I've been through, some of the things that I've witnessed, some of the people that I've worked with. Um, I have met incredible people from cultures all over the world um, and had so many conversations over a glass of vanilla rum in the jungle or, or whatever it is that I've learned. And I've learned something from every one of those people that's made me a more, I think, mentally resilient person. And then, as you say, physically as well, you know, I am uh, probably a couple of stone heavier than I was a few years back. Um, and, I, you know, I'm a dad now, so I feel like that's OK. But I learned the importance of, of regular exercise um, and physically, if you're going to work in a field, whether that's expedition filmmaking, expedition medicine or working on a DCA in inner city London, you can't help other people unless you look after yourself. Um, and this job will take its toll on you mentally and physically. And it's vital to have an outlet for the stress that works for you, whether that's digging into a book or talking to friends or for me, it's going running regularly. Um, you've got to have somewhere to get away from it and, and look after yourself and get your head screwed back on so that you can help the people that look to us on their worst days. So Ryan, just, just coming into land on the conversation, actually, um, what does the future hold for you? Sort of where where do you want to take the training, and indeed, where where are your aspirations within Presswell Care? Yeah, at the moment, um, obviously, I'm I'm hopefully pretty close to qualifying as an EMT. Um, I just have this final hurdle of my exams, which should be within the next month or two, um, and then I plan to move hopefully fairly swiftly onto the paramedic degree apprenticeship. Um, it's not about wanting to rush technician stuff. It's just, I think I've always known that the paramedicine is where I want to go. Um, and there's great opportunity 
um, in the workforce at the moment to develop into that. There's a lot of places on these new degree apprenticeships. So I kind of want to take that opportunity whilst it's there. So yeah, it's, it's qualify as an EMT, then it's get on to being a paramedic and then become a good paramedic. Um, I, you know, I have a particular interest in critical care, in trauma, in human factors, in medicine. Um, you know, at this stage, I have aspirations of moving into advanced practice in critical care. I'm fully aware that that might change. Um, it's not about big, exciting jobs to me. I'm, I'm more interested in those kind of advanced interventions and, and how interesting it is bringing the hospital to the roadside. But, you know, I'm new to the job. And in five years time, I might be more interested in the urgent care or the GP route. I think that's the exciting thing about paramedicine and pre-hospital care is there's a lot of different opportunities for people in the field at the moment so yeah you know I, I have aspirations to move into advanced practice but I have a very open mind about what opportunities might present themselves in the future um, and you know I'll always be a photographer and an expedition addict and I'll always want to get out into the wilds of the world and, and rough it up and have fun with cool people in cool places so i think finding some way to mesh that side of me with the pre-hospital clinician side of me um, particularly as my daughter grows a bit older i think is something that is is a definite place i want to go ryan listen thank you so much for the last hour i really do appreciate your time and perspectives and it's just been fantastic tracking through some of your experiences so thank you yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great talking. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.